Unprepared to engage Mormon missionaries when they knock on your door? Perhaps the book Mormonism 101 will help. Mormonism 101, published by Baker Book. Available at your favorite Christian bookstore. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. What does the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teach regarding the doctrine of exaltation? That's what we hope to talk about this week, and we're going to do so by pointing to an address that was given to the Brigham Young University student body on March 10th. 1964, by Elder Eldred G. Smith, who was the patriarch to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, why are we looking at a talk that was given way back in 1964? Well, there's a number of reasons why we think we should look at this. First of all, Mr. Smith is going to speak to a friendly audience, not only an audience of what we would say, or nominal Latter-day Saints, but an audience of students who are going to a church-owned school. When we look at this talk, it becomes very clear that Mr. Smith is intent on educating his listeners. He's trying to be as clear as possible. Also, what we hear Mr. Smith teach is really not much different from what is taught today in the church. But there are a lot of things that he brings out that I don't think you're going to normally hear in even a church conference message. And of course, general conference is held twice a year, in April and in October. And I think one of the reasons why is because General Conference, even though it is given to the membership and it's broadcast to even non-members who care to listen, there are a lot of non-members who are probably listening to General Conference or even a lot of new members to the church listening to General Conference, where I think some of what Mr. Smith is going to address might be a little bit shocking. And I think that's why we don't hear this kind of talk any longer. Now, he was introduced that day by President Earl C. Crockett, and this is what Mr. Crockett says in introducing Patriarch Smith. He says, Patriarch Eldred G. Smith was born in Lehigh, Utah. Lehigh is just south of the point of the mountain in Utah County. He is the great, great, great grandson of Joseph Smith Sr. That would be the father of Joseph Smith Jr., the man, of course, who is the founder of the LDS movement. He's the first presiding patriarch. This is the only office in the church that follows the patriarchal line from father to son, and Elder Smith is the seventh presiding patriarch of the church since it was organized in 1830. Now, if you were to look in the book Priesthood and Church Government that was put together by Mormon Apostle John Witzow, on page 127, there's a paragraph under the subheading, The Patriarch of the Church. 
There is one patriarch in the Church known officially as the Patriarch to the Church, with general jurisdiction throughout the whole organization. He holds the keys of the patriarchal office, and unto him the promise is given, quote, that whoever he blesses shall be blessed, and whoever he curses shall be cursed, that whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, end quote. Well, besides the fact that that's really a promise given to all believers, it does seem to appear that this position is of real importance in the LDS Church. In fact, on page 182 of that same book, Priesthood and Church Government, it gives a list of administrative officers, and it has first the First Presidency, then the Twelve Apostles, then the Patriarch to the Church, and then below that is the First Council of the Seventy, and then the presiding bishopric. Now, for most of us, these titles don't really mean a whole lot. But basically, what we have here is that this position of patriarch to the church, as I said, is something of real importance. So you would think that if Eldred G. Smith is going to address an audience of students at Brigham Young University, He's going to be speaking with some kind of authority. This guy is not a bishop. He's certainly not a missionary. He is right up there in authority. So we would assume that what he has to say is something that these students better listen to. In this introduction, Mr. Crockett goes on to say that Elder Smith attended the University of Utah, receiving training in engineering and that during World War II, he was an engineer for the Manhattan Atomic Energy Project at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Now, when you hear the phrase Manhattan Atomic Energy Project, most of the time, at least I did at first, I'm thinking of Los Alamos. But there were really three different places where civilians and scientists were hired to try to come up with an atomic weapon to end World War II. One of them was certainly in Los Alamos. There was another one in Hanford, Washington. But as Crockett has said here, there was another one in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Eldridge Smith was working at that particular facility. Now, that becomes important because he's going to bring that up later in his talk. We might mention that the office of the Patriarch of the Church is no longer a position in the Church. It was ended in 1979. Eldred Smith was still alive. In fact, Eldred Smith lived to be 106 years old. But the position became, I guess, irrelevant, you could say, even though it sounds like it's a pretty prominent position in the early years of the Church. Smith was, in fact, a direct descendant of Joseph Smith, as we brought out, but it doesn't mean that there were always descendants of Joseph Smith fulfilling that position. There were some times where temporarily others who were not a part of the Smith family filled in and took up that position, but primarily it was going from father to son. You had to be in the lineage of Joseph Smith. I would assume that's the chosen seed that's talked about in the book Articles of Faith on page 208. Smith goes on after this introduction to talk about his time at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. He says, it was mentioned that I did some work in Oak Ridge, Tennessee in engineering. Then he goes on to tell the story about a head scientist that he remembered there. 
I remember, he said, on a number of occasions, the head scientist or physicist who came to talk to us would pound that oak table with his fist to emphasize the fact that nothing can be destroyed. The prophet Joseph Smith told us that a long time ago, and we have it recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants that the elements of the earth are eternal. And that's from Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, verse 33. Well, let's talk about 9333, because this is also the section that talks about the fact that man was in the beginning with God. That's verse 29. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. This is why when we talk about the eternal nature of the Mormon God, we can't talk about the Mormon God being eternally God. Certainly, he has an eternal nature, but as you can see from verse 29, so does humankind. Man was also in the beginning with God. If you're going to say that the Mormon God was eternal, well, so is man. Now, how God became God out of that is a whole nother study that can get very complicated very quickly. But do you think, though, Eric, that maybe Mr. Smith is jumping to a conclusion that I don't think DNC 9333 is telling us, even though it says that man was in the beginning with God, and if you're going to assume that the Mormon God was eternal, though he was not eternally God, that needs to be made clear. He was not eternally God. Is he going to try and make it sound as if that just because something cannot truly be destroyed, that that automatically assumes that matter or the universe is eternal. Do you think that is kind of a leap in his logic? I really do, because it presupposes that matter has always existed, because he's saying, well, you have to go into this eternal past, and so therefore that's going to support D and C 93. But what if there was an outside being a higher being we would call God, who created everything. Of course, it's true that nothing can be destroyed now, but that doesn't mean that it was not created at one time by this higher being. Just by what you said, though, Eric, doesn't that tend to prove that the God of Mormonism cannot possibly be the God that we, as New Testament Christians, believe in today? Because we do believe that the God spoken of in the Bible is the God that started it all. He is the creator. He is the primary cause. The God of Mormonism cannot at all be the primary cause. There has to have been some other deity of some sort that preceded the God of Mormonism. And in fact, another deity that had to precede that deity going clear back into eternity past. So we have no primary cause in Mormonism, whereas in Christianity we most definitely do, and that would be the God that's described in our Bible. In Psalm 90, verse 2, it says God is from everlasting to everlasting. So when we read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, well, who was in the beginning but God himself? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This goes back to the idea that God created out of nothing, which we call ex nihilo creation. Mormonism teaches that God did not create out of nothing, but organized the elements or ex materia creation. Now, he's going to make a big deal that nothing can be destroyed, and he tells this story. He says, I like the story, as an example of it, of the lady who accidentally dropped her gold ring into a glass of acid of some kind. The ring dissolved, and she exclaimed in excitement and horror that her ring was gone. They said, what happened? She said, I dropped my ring in this glass, and it is all dissolved. It's gone! Exclamation point. A scientist or chemist who was there said, 
Oh no, your ring is not gone, it's still there. She could not understand that, but he who knew the law added some kind of salts to the acid which caused the gold to condense. It formed a ball in the bottom of the glass. He reached in and took it out. She took the gold to a goldsmith, and he made a new ring. The same process goes into effect with this body. At the time of death, there is a decomposition. But through the atonement of Christ, all men shall be resurrected again. That means that that there will be a time come when this body will be restored again in perfection in its newness. Now, I wouldn't have a big argument with what he said regarding that ring and so forth. And I wouldn't have a big argument regarding how we will die and we will decompose, but through the resurrection, we will be made perfect. So it doesn't really matter whether you, let's say, died in a traffic accident and were dismembered, or you died in a fire and were burnt to a crisp, or even you could say cremated after death, that God has the ability and the power to bring that material back together and that we will have a perfected body in the hereafter. So I don't have a problem with what he's saying so far, but he's going to use this to draw some other conclusions that I think might be a little more difficult to defend. Tomorrow, we're going to continue looking at this talk that was given by Eldridge G. Smith, the patriarch of the church, a message he gave called Exaltation, delivered on March 10, 1964. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.